Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to get right into the Word of God tonight. I wish Kathy could be here, but she's not, especially tonight when I'm teaching on marriage. But she had to take her mother, and her mother just needs our prayers, and she's going to make it, but, ah, well, let's, let's stand together. Genesis chapter 2. And let's just read the first few verses, because I'm going to be going through primarily chapter 2 tonight. We're going to look at the creation of Eve and the first wedding. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Say, if God rested, where does that leave me? Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now turn to Genesis chapter 1 and we're just going to pick the theme verse of this whole series. This is the book of beginnings, Genesis beginnings. And let's read verse uh, 1 together. Are you ready? In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Bless it to our hearts in Jesus' mighty name. Illuminate our hearts and spirits, Lord. Amen and amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Well, there's lots of things in chapter 2. We've been going through uh, Genesis 1. We've seen that God created everything that you see, hear, taste, smell, and touch. Everything God created it. Something came out of nothing. Uh, What's the Latin phrase that I taught you? Ex nihilo. Something out of nothing. There was not an existing uh, earth. There was not existing substance. Um, There was no age, no aging, until God created something that could wear. Something that could wear down. Uh, So God created the heavens and the earth. Now when we come to chapter 2, Um, we find, first of all, that God blesses the seventh day. God blesses the seventh day. He's finished with the creation of all things, and on the seventh day, the Bible says, as we just read, God rested. And because God rested, folks, He intends for you and I to rest. Now, I don't want to get into legalism and, and split hairs about which day you're supposed to rest. I believe you ought to just pick one to rest. We have our Seventh-day Adventist folks who say it ought to be Saturday. We have our good Protestant people who say it ought to be Sunday. The Catholics, I believe it's Sunday. You know what? There ought to be a day that you rest your body and rest your mind. Now, Exodus chapter 20, verse 9, in the commandments, when Moses gave us the Ten Commandments, the Bible says in verse 8, Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Now look at verse 10. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You shall, uh, uh, in it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant. In other words, if you're an employer, you ought not work your employees seven days. All right? Nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, 
the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now, let me tell you what I believe the the Sabbath is all about. I do not believe that when you rest on a seventh day, you ought to set a day aside. Folks, this is why people have emotional breakdowns and physical breakdowns and family breakdowns, and this is why people burn out. Because we are breaking God's law. Now, this is an Old Testament commandment, but I'm going to tell you something. It's as good as thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal. He said, remember, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I believe we're not only to to rest, but the Sabbath day is to remember and worship God. This is why we come together for church services on Sunday morning. Because we're worshiping and acknowledging and focusing on God. Now the Pharisees and the Sadducees took this day and made it just ridiculous, where you couldn't get up out of a chair, which some of you would like. Uh, uh, and you, shouldn't, you couldn't get out of a chair, you couldn't lift a finger, you couldn't do anything. That's why when Jesus and the disciples were walking through the wheat field, and they reached out and began to pluck some of that wheat and eat it because they were starving, the Pharisees came against Jesus and his disciples and said, look what they're doing. They're expending energy on the Sabbath. And Jesus made a very, very crucial point. He said, you don't understand. The Sabbath was, man was not made to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man to rest. So you're, you're confusing what it's all about. God made the Sabbath so that we could rest and worship Him. How many of you can say when we get in here and we sing worship songs and we bless the Lord that there is a rest that comes with that? I think when we leave church, we ought to feel edified. We ought to feel exhorted. We ought to feel comforted. We ought to feel like we came into His presence. And when you get out there, and even if you don't go punch a clock on Sunday on that seventh day, if you don't acknowledge God and don't worship God and don't focus on God, no rest comes to your inner man. You're just out there wearing yourself down. Rest comes when you lift your hands and worship the Lord and bless His name. So that's what the Sabbath is all about. And way back in the beginning, here's what God established, and it has not changed. Now in verses 5 and 6, We find way back in the primitive world, this is the way that God watered the earth. It says, this is the history, verse 4, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, verse 5, before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth and there was no man to till the ground. Look what verse 6 says, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. This is why when Noah, and we're going to be looking at Noah very soon, when Noah began to tell the people, God came to him and said, listen, Noah, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to destroy the earth with a flood. The end of all flesh has come before me. God, and I don't mean to be sacrilegious with this, but God kind of said what Popeye was known to say. I've had all I can stands. I can't stands no more. That just came to me. I don't know why. I haven't seen Popeye in a long time. But 
here's the deal. There is, there is something of the wrath of God that builds up. And it reaches a place where God said, okay, the line has been crossed. And God came to Noah, and God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, and I'm going to destroy it with a flood. And he told Noah, it's going to rain. When he told Noah that, as I look at Scripture, it had not rained until Noah's time. Because God watered the earth with a mist that came up out of the earth. It was just like walking through a a, uh, tropical rainforest. It was just mist coming up out of the ground. So when Noah began to preach to the people of his generation, for 120 years he preached, according to Simon Peter, Noah was called a preacher of righteousness. Noah began to say to the people of his generation, God is going to destroy this whole thing with a flood. Now, this ought to be real fresh to us today because we've seen people sitting on rooftops waving blankets to be rescued. But in Noah's day, folks, it just kept on rising. It went all the way to the highest mountaintop and then it covered that. There was no escape. There was no rooftop that could hide from the flood. But Noah preached righteousness and do you know that I admire the man because for 120 years he had not one convert. Not one. The only people that entered that ark, which is a picture of Christ, was his family, his sons and their wives. That's it. And the whole earth was covered in a flood. But until then, there was no rain out of the sky. God watered the earth with a mist that came up out of the ground. So when he began to preach, water's going to fall out of the sky, they thought he was crazy. Just like they think we are when we say Christ is coming out of the sky. See, all of this was a type and a shadow and a picture of what is to come. Noah's message was, you're going to see an unprecedented event. It's going to come out of the sky. Rain. And God's going to judge this earth. We say, you're going to see an unprecedented event. Christ is going to return. And he's going to judge the earth. And so our message in that respect is very similar to Noah's. But look, it says right here that in the ancient world, in the antediluvian world, God watered the earth with a mist that came up out of the ground. Isn't that amazing? What would it have been like to be walking along and here comes this mist out of the ground watering the garden that God created? What an incredibly stunning, awesome, beautiful, unfathomable place it must have been. No sin, no darkness, no separation from God. Verse 7, it says, And the Lord God formed man. Now this is only repeating what we were told in chapter 1 for sake of emphasis because now he's going to tell us clearly about Eve. In just a moment. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. I shared with you last week that we're, we come from dirt. Amen? And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man beca- became a living being when God breathed into him. Life comes from God. Then it says in verse 8, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Everybody say, God prepares good things for those he loves. 
I think if we could see this garden, we would absolutely be just speechless. This thing was splendidly beautiful. It says in verse 9, Out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now you got two trees that were in this garden. Pay close attention to them. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, what in the world was this tree of life? Somebody, when we had that question, I think it was Ernest Scoggins, asked me about that tree of life because in Revelations chapter 22 and verse 2, I believe, we find the tree of life again. In Revelations 22, I think, I hope I'm right because I'm telling you that. Yeah, there it is. Revelations 22, verse 2. Here we find the tree of life again. Oddly enough, at the end of the world, in the end of the book of Revelations, in the middle of the street in heaven, and on either side of the river was the tree of life. Well, the tree of life we find first all the way back in the primitive garden. So what was this tree of life? I believe that this tree of life, first of all, as far as you and I are concerned, is a picture of Jesus Christ. This tree of life. Because there it was in the garden. And I think that it was God's way of saying to Adam, Adam, as long as you obey me, life is guaranteed. Perpetual, endless life is guaranteed for you. And so I want you to look at that tree of life. I want you to focus on that tree of life. And I want you to know that I have promised you perpetuity of life for as long as you obey me. But then God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil right there. So here do you see, in the Garden of Eden, in this beautiful, splendid, matchless, unprecedented garden, where Adam, all by himself, not another human being, began to walk with God in the cool of the garden, there you find in that garden two trees. Here's life, and here's the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Isn't that the way that life is right now for you and me? It says in the Bible, we, we have set before us blessing and curse. You choose. Do you want to be blessed? You turn to the tree of life. Do you want to be cursed? You turn to sin. And it's your choice. And so all the way back in the beginning with the first man, you have free will. You have choice. Adam, I did not make a robot. Adam, I didn't make you where you've got to worship me. I'm not going to wind you up like a robot where you just lift your hands automatically, robotically, and worship me. No, Adam, here is the tree of life, a picture of Jesus, and here's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now I was thinking, what in the world does that mean, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Without getting too deep about it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what does that mean? If I eat that, it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam didn't need to worry about good because you only have a contrast between good and evil when you are fallen and you've got to choose one of the two. There's no battle between good and evil for Adam. Because he didn't know evil. He had never fallen. So there was no wickedness. There was no sin. He was totally, completely, perfectly righteous. But when you eat of that tree, Adam, for the first time in your whole life, you're going to be in conflict between good and evil. You're going to know evil, and therefore you're going to have to know good. Because you're going to have to choose good over the evil. But unless you sin, you're never going to have to choose between those two. So God put it right there and said, now here is your choice. I've given you everything in this garden. Isn't God good? There was only one wrong tree. 
how come the boy could not have left it alone? We wouldn't be here. I just wondered about that, you know? And, and, and God is so clear with him. He's so clear with him a little bit later. He says, of every tree, you can have it. It's all yours. I've given you all of it. Just don't touch that one. Just not that one. That's the only one. Because the day you touch that one, surely you're going to die. Well, you know what I'd have done? I'd have built a fence around that sucker. A cement wall. I don't put 300 different padlocks over it and just leave it alone. He apparently didn't even communicate the message good to Eve. But we'll get to that in just a minute. Now look at this. So there's the two trees in the garden. Now in verses 10 through 14, he names rivers. There were four beautiful, breathtaking rivers going through that garden. One of them we know real well, the Euphrates. And then in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. So he gave him a task. Can you say with me, a task? He gave him a job. He said, Adam, I've made this beautiful garden. Now I want you to tend, and I want you to keep it. So even before, uh, he had to work by the sweat of his brow. Because you, you, Listen, I cannot wait, even though it's not a great topic, it's going to be very interesting when we, look at, when we look at the fall. The fall. And all that happened because of the fall. Because before the fall, when he kept this garden, he didn't break a sweat. It was after the fall that it says you're going to till this garden by the sweat of your brow. Before the fall, there wasn't any sweat. There wasn't any labor as we know it. So he just, he gave him a task. Everybody say with me, God's a God of purpose. Anything he makes, there's a purpose. He gave Adam the garden not only to eat from it and to enjoy visually, but he also gave him this garden with a purpose. I want you, Adam, to keep it. But I want you to notice now at verse 17, after he's told him, of every tree, in verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. You can eat the oranges. You can eat the apples. You can eat the plums. You can eat all of it. But Adam, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will, everybody say with me, surely, surely die. I've noticed, and you'll, we'll see this probably next week, we will see it next week, when, when the devil tempted Eve, he took this surely out. And he soft-pedaled God's warning. We'll see that next week. But I want you to see how clear God was. It's just Adam and God. And God says to Adam, I've given you everything, son, but this one you can't touch. Don't eat of it. If you do, surely you will die. Now before sin, there was no death. Nothing would ever have died. 
We can't comprehend, and I'm going to do my best next week to paint you a decent picture of what sin did. We can't comprehend. I don't think most of us have any idea what sin brought to the earth. Not only to you and to me, but the Bible says the whole creation groans and longs to be delivered from this planet and what sin brought to it. But he says, Adam, you'll die. Guarantee you. Now, Adam looked at him, I would imagine, like a deer stares at headlights. Die? What is that? What's die? What God was saying is, you as a human being will have an end. And right now, Adam, you don't have an end. Something terrible is going to happen to you if you eat of that fruit. So say with me, God's very clear. Now in verse 18. God notices a need. He says, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. I want you to notice, Adam didn't go to God and say, hey, I'm lonely. Uh, you know what, I just don't, I, you know, the animals are great, Lord, but you know, there's something, we're not getting along. I need, he didn't go to God with the need. I want you to notice, God saw the need without Adam having, and didn't Jesus say that? Your father knows what you have need of before you even ask him. So here's, here's, The Bible telling us, Moses telling us by the revelation of the Holy Ghost, it is not good that man should be alone. God noticed that. And he said, I'm going to make him a helper comparable to him. Now in verses 19 to 20, it says, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. Folks, you've just got to get a hold of this. I thought about this today. Adam just stood there, and every... Do you know what a genius he was in his unfallen state? Do you know that most of us would brain cramp if God brought us ten things to name? I mean, he not only named them, he named them intelligently after characteristics about them. So the man is standing there, and this is before the fall. Before the fall, animals were not afraid of men. Birds would land on your shoulder. There was no, there was no barrier, no wedge between human beings and the created order. He stood there, and everything God made came to him. Let's just take the insects. Thousands of species. Bzzz, what am I? Fly. I'm going to guess, and I, don't, I didn't read this, I wish I'd looked it up. If you took all the insect world, the animal world, the fishes of the sea, everything, and you wanted to know the number of species this, this original man named, it's staggering. It would be it would be, it would have to be close to a million. But this intellect that was not fallen 
He just stood there, and every creature came to him. You say, Pastor Jeff, come on now. Every creature came, yeah, because every creature came to Noah, too. And by patience, the snail entered the ark. God brought all two of everything he created to Noah. Do you really believe that? Of course I believe that. God made them. He brought you here. How'd you get here? Now, so here he is. All the animals, lions, tigers, bears, fox, coyote, everything. They came to him and he said, and named them. You will be, you will be, you will be, you are, you are thousands and thousands and thousands of times. <laughs> that brain cramps me just thinking about what he did. I hear so many things, and Pastor Jeff, this just sounds like a fairy tale to me. Uh, no, it's not a fairy tale. This is the Word of God. It's the Word of God. The man, the original man, the glorious unfallen man stood there and named everything God made. The birds, thousands of species. And it says in verse 20, but for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So here we come to an operation. Verse 21, God anesthetized Adam. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. Now, I'm going to tell you why I believe God did that. So that Adam would have nothing at all to do with directing God. Sometimes when God does the most powerful things in our lives, We are the most relaxed, the most trusting, the most yielded. We're not uptight. How do you think Adam would have done if God said, I'm about to give you a helpmate, um, so hang on while I open up your chest and take a rib out? <laughs> With this kind of a brain, I think he would have said, well now, you know, can I, can I offer a few suggestions? No, God wanted him completely asleep. So God undertook the first surgery in the history of man. He slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Wow. You know, that's a wow. Because he didn't go to the dirt like he did with Adam and create Eve out of the dirt. Uh-uh. He went to his side and took something out of him. The woman was made from Adam's rib, not out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. We don't get any closer than that. 
Look at verse 22. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. Wow. Now, you know, I thought a lot. You know, God came to me and said, Jeff, I'll give you three Bible scenes that I'll let you go and be a, a first-hand observer to. Take your pick. If you asked me, one of my picks would be this right here. Because here you've got the first man put under by God, slain in the Spirit. Then he opens up his side in an operation. He takes one of his ribs. There's that rib. And out of the rib, God fashioned Isha. Isha. The first woman. Can you even let your imagination go to what that looked like? God just creating like that. It's just so profound. It just blows my mind. And you know what? God performed the first wedding. He was not only the creator, but he was the father who gave the bride away. It says in verse 22, he brought her to the man. Dun, 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 dun. No, want any of that. Can you imagine when Adam wakes up? That's what I was telling you last week. That's where a woman comes from. Whoa, man! He brought her to the man. This is so powerful. He brought her to the man. Now, Adam said, this is the first thing he said, this is now bone of my bones. So apparently he knew what God had done. God, by revelation, showed him what he had done. Maybe he just felt, ah, hey, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, woman, because she was taken out of Ish, man. Taken out of man. Now, here comes one of the strongest marriage principles in the Bible. And Paul quotes this in Ephesians. I use this at every wedding that I perform. Verse 24, there's a therefore. You know what I say about therefore. When you see a therefore, you've got to see what it's there for. It's a connective. So Moses comes in now by revelation of the Spirit, and he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. So notice, there, there's a leaving, and then he says, and be joined, or cling is the Hebrew, cling, or cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh now here's where a lot of people mess up in in marriage there has got to be a leaving before there can be a cleaving and there's a lot of uh, daughters who never leave mom there's a lot of sons that never leave mom 
There's a lot of daughters that never leave dad. There are parents-in-law who, who, who meddle in their children's marriages. Let me tell you something. Something very powerful is being said here about marriage. When you say, I do, there is, you are leaving, you are making a, a secondary every relationship in your life. Secondary, supplemental to this one. There is a leaving and there is a cleaving. There is no cleaving without a leaving. You cannot cleave without leaving. Just ask any son or daughter who's in a marriage and they got parents-in-law who interfere all the time. It's one of the biggest mistakes parents-in-law make. Well, she's not cooking like I did. Let her cook hamburger, help her till they've been married for 30 years, but leave them alone. Well, she's not taking care of my son like I did. So on and so forth, there comes this... No, there's a leaving and then there's a cleaving. And every parent, and i got to tell you, I know that I would be the worst at this. If I saw... You know, I, I just know that I'm going to have to pull in the reins on me. It's the mercy of God that neither one of my kids has gotten married yet. It's probably the mercy of God that I don't have grandkids yet. Because I know I will spoil them wretched, wretched, rotten. And, and it will be such a temptation to want to get in there... And, and metal, but you've got to let go. There's a leaving. And see, this is the first wedding. They didn't have parents to leave. They didn't have a navel. So why is this said? They didn't have... No, Moses brought this in by revelation when there weren't any parents to leave. And he laid down a principle for their kids and their kids' kids and for all descendants afterwards. Here's the deal. You've got to leave father and mother. You say goodbye in terms of now this is the primary relationship in my life and it will be so until the day that I die. Amen. God brought her to the man. Praise God. So now we come to the end of the chapter. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. And chapter 3, verse 1, here comes trouble next week. So let's stand together, can we? Amen. In a marriage, it's the only time in all of life that one plus one equals one. The two shall become one. When you add two people together, they become one flesh. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you, Lord, for creating such a glorious creation. Lord, our hearts break as we see chapter three coming and the fall of man and all the agony and pain and tears and misery that came behind it but it will help us to understand why there is pain and suffering and evil in this world when we look at this next chapter. And thank you, Lord, for the great promise that lies in chapter 3 of a Messiah. And we look forward to next week greatly. Bless everyone here tonight with your presence, with your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.